the great gospel that just uh, gives us so many uh, important passages and uh, recorded events that are not found in, in any of the other synoptic gospels. Um, so we've been taking our time in, and I want to take time to, uh, since we're halfway through it, to look at the life of Jesus regarding his prayer life, because Luke records his prayer life more than any others, and we get a full focus of it is, and we want to see how it applies to us and what we can learn from it. So uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your word, and Lord, that you will continue to deal with us as we read, as we study, as we ponder these things and how they apply to us, Lord, and that you might... Uh, Make them alive to each of us individually, Lord, uh, as you direct and guide us. So, Lord, we pray for your church. We pray for each of us, Lord, that you would just continue to use us. We pray for Calvary, Pasadena, that you would just make it a light. Lord, that we would just um, preach your gospel and be ready to serve those who are so lost. So, Lord, we thank you. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Why don't you open to Luke chapter 3, please. The message is entitled, The Prayer Life of Jesus. We're going to take selected scriptures, the number of times that Jesus prayed. Martin Luther said this, I have so much to do, I cannot get along without giving three hours daily of my best time to prayer. E.M. Bounds stated, quote, when the church is in the condition of prayer, God's cause always flourishes and His kingdom on earth always triumphs. When the church fails to pray, God's cause decays and evil of every kind prevails. Prayer speaks of a complete dependency on God. And there is no greater example in the scriptures than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we examine His prayer life. The Gospel of Luke um, provides for us, this will be the primary text. It captures the uh, prayer life of Jesus as he's moving through life and ministry, through the difficulties, through the good times. Jesus is portrayed as the second man from heaven, as you know, the last Adam. Being God, he emptied himself of his glory. He took on the form of a servant, and he came to die for the world. As a perfect man, he experienced all human weaknesses, yet without sin, we're told, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he continued in this intimate and personal fellowship with the Father that he had before he became flesh, as he continued in this prayerful, intimate communion and sweet fellowship with the Father. Always he with the Father. We never get a record where Jesus prayed with the disciples, our Father. Now you're going to see the example of that prayer, but he never said that. He never included them. He was on a complete different level than us. So what we want to do is um, observe the various occasions that our Lord and Savior, as we said, had prayed during his life here, to teach us... Um, um, our complete dependency upon Him, but what each individual occasion indicates for us as believers. So let's begin here with the first occasion Jesus prays. It was at His baptism in chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. And we're familiar with many of these except for the last two because we're already up to chapter 11 tonight. 
But here in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, at his baptism, Jesus was uh, with the people, among the people, ready to start his ministry. That's the context. Uh, verse 21, Luke is the only one who tells that Jesus was praying at his baptism, by the way. That's why it's such a rich gospel. The word prayer there means uh, adoration and worship. Um, the heavens opened up in verse 21, confirming Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in 22, descended in the form of a dove upon Jesus. Now, you know, the dove is symbolic of gentleness, empowerment, and enablement for ministry. As Jesus will be driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, where he will defeat the devil in chapter 4, verse 1 through 13. And we saw that in great detail already. This was the sign that was given to John the Baptist on whom the Spirit descends. He is the Messiah in John 1.33. You know, Jesus was his cousin. Now notice in 22, the voice said, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Confirming Jesus was his son through the incarnation. Confirming the approval of the life of Jesus for ministry. The voice of the Father is recorded three times in Scripture. The baptism, Mount of Transfiguration, and the cross. Three times. Now, this first occasion of prayer by Jesus marks a dependency on God for one's call to ministry that is directed service with the empowerment to carry it out. That's our application. Each of us are called according to God's gifts that he imparts to us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, Romans 12, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, 10. We have at least one gift. But God calls us, God enables us. So we need to go to him, not to me. I'm not your, your savior. We never tell you to get involved in ministry and tell you, you go here, you go there. No, you have to go to God. What are your gifts? What are your calling? I know what mine are. So I only do what God's called me to do. So we don't have sign of bliss here for different things. We encourage you to get involved. And it's a lot easier to steer a moving object than one to stand still. So you go to God. What are my gifts? What am I calling, Lord? Direct the service. Now, all believers are called to ministry. But all are called to ministry of reconciliation for sure. We're not all called the same ministry, but one ministry we all have is the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5.18. All of us being born again know what it is to be lost. All of us being born again know what it is to be forgiven. All of us being born again understand what it is to be in fellowship with God and to know what life's all about and what's going to happen when you die. Now, once you know that, why would you keep quiet? It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. So every opportunity that God opens up, we share Christ. Jesus told the disciples they were to tarry in Jerusalem so they'd be endued with power from on high in Acts 1.8. They would be witnesses to him, not for him, not just sharing, but to him. And he would see that they're living out the, the gospel. And be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's by depending on him. Jesus calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5. It's one of six phrases that indicate the empowerment for service. Where to can be continually filled with the Spirit of God in Ephesians 5.18. Jesus cried out on the last day of the great feast. As he stood in the steps of the 
temple. And he said, He that thirsts, let him come unto me, for our innermost being shall gush torrents of living water. And this he spoke, John says, of the Holy Spirit, because it was not yet given to the church, because he was not yet glorified. So this was the last day of the feast when no water was brought from the pool of Siloam to indicate that they no longer needed water like in the wilderness. It was then when Jesus stood up and says, you're still empty. You need a constant filling of the Spirit of God. And of course, when the Spirit came, that's what's given to the church. So the first occasion Jesus prays was at his baptism in preparation for ministry. If you are going to be prepared for ministry... You must pray to the Lord. He prepares you. Now you get instructed, but it's God who's teaching you. But God will direct and guide you. Directed service to be effective. Now notice, secondly, we go to chapter 5. The second occasion Jesus prays was when his ministry began to make overwhelming demands on him. In chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, just two verses. Jesus has just cleansed a leper in the city, and the result of the news uh, uh, of the cleansing of this leper was so great that multitudes came all around to be healed of the infirmities. Verse 15. And so in verse 16, the practice of Jesus, um, by the constant demands of people, was to often withdraw into the wilderness to pray. The word withdraw means to slip away into the wilderness. It's also recorded in chapter 4, verse 42. He always did this. They they found Jesus praying or they would look for him. He wasn't there. He was out praying alone. Do you take time to just be off on your own? Now, we're to live in an attitude of prayer constantly. But do you have times when you just get off alone with the Lord? You know, we're living in such a noisy, mechanical, and high-technology world. You need to shut some of those things off. I don't know how some of you do it. Facebook, Twitter, text, voicemail, this, that. My Lord, it takes me a half hour to clear just my emails in the morning. I don't see how people have time to think. To contemplate the truths of life for for wisdom and everything. He would pray to the Father for direction, guidance. And strength, Jesus never did anything on his own. He always got his orders daily from the Father. The example for you and I. The word prayed, like the first that we saw, means to adore and worship. He's in fellowship with the Father. So the second occasion of prayer by Jesus marks a dependency on God in order to be able to continue to serve Effectively, anybody can start in ministry. There are many people who say, well, God's called me and they start a church and it's gone. Well, God's called me and whatever and they're no longer there. So continue effectively through the years. Consistent. I've told you before, if you leave here, when you come back, 10 days, 10 years, you'll find me doing the same thing when you left. Teaching the word of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I will not change. Effective service. In spite of the demands in our lives by people, we need to spend time in prayer. It's so easy to get moved away from that, to be pressured. Um, 
And so we get confused and we get pressured to do the will of other people or what, what appears to be the most important, but is not really the most important. It has been said that the tyranny of the urgent will always take the place of the more important without prayer. Therefore, we are commanded and exhorted throughout Scripture to pray. We're to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And without ceasing means we're in an attitude of prayer. I have time when I, I go to the Lord. I have time when there's special needs that the people ask me to pray. But as I walk all day, as I'm, ta- I'm, I'm, I'm in an attitude of prayer that when things come up, I'm shooting things up to the Lord and, and whatever happens, I'm, I'm in an attitude of prayer, depending upon Him. We're to pray about everything in supplication and thanksgiving, that we be not anxious for anything, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that our hearts and mind be guarded. Lest we're overwhelmed with anxiety and everything else. What's the big thing today? People, uh, they have... Uh, uh, anxiety attacks. Well, why didn't we have these in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? Are we breeding a different type of people now? It's all the pressure of life and the confusion of families and the conflicting of society, the disorder that man can handle. You better spend time in prayer. Or you get scrambled brains. (laughs) We're to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, watching to the end for the perseverance for the saints. Ephesians 6.18, that's at the end of the armor, the warfare. There's warfare going on right here. If God would open our eyes, there's good angels or bad angels. Warfare going on. The minute you're born into Christ, you're born into warfare. All you can do is be a good soldier and learn the warfare and pick up your armor that is not carnal, but spiritual. Bring down the strongholds. Resist the devil and end up standing after resisting and combating or be taken captive. The choice is yours, not mine. You remember in Exodus 17, Moses was praying as uh, Joshua was out there uh, fighting the Amalekites. And as long as Moses' arms were up, Israel prevailed. When they were down, Amalek would prevail. And so Aaron and Ur lifted up the hands and held them up of Moses. It's a surrender to God and it's a plea to God to depend upon him. That he would direct and guide us. So the second occasion Jesus prays was when he, his ministry began to make overwhelming demands on him and be able to meet them. I have to draw from the Lord so that I choose the priority, the most important, what he directs me, not what people tell me or pressure me to do. The third occasion is in chapter 6, verse 12 through 16. Jesus prays here for the choosing of the 12 apostles. Jesus is going to choose 12 apostles out of the multitude of disciples to be his 12 apostles. To carry on the work of ministry when he departs. In verse 12, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray all night to God, his father. That's how 
critical this decision was going to be. And there's critical decisions in your life. Who you're going to marry. Where you're going to send your kids to school. Where you're going to move. Do I take this job? Do I hang out with this couple? Very important decisions. The word for prayer there is used to address God in prayers. That's a different one. And it's prayer in general with the idea of worship and reverence. And it's always to God, never for man. It's only used for God. He was communing in fellowship with his father. Sweet counsel together. Jesus at daybreak called his many disciples to himself and he chose 12 and he named them apostles. Verse 13 says. From 14 to 16 we get the 12 names. Judas Iscariot stands out in 16. He's the traitor. The only one who was not a Galilean. He was a Judean. That place that considered themselves superior to the northern Jews. You and I would have never chosen these men for two reasons. First, they wouldn't met our standard. And second, we would not have affected their lives like Jesus was going to affect their lives. God picks people that we would never pick for ministry. Stop and look around. If we weren't born again, some of us would never hang out together. Be truthful about it, okay? You become, your, your little small world becomes a big, huge world when you become born again. It's great. Now, this third occasion of prayer by Jesus marks a dependency on God through prayer to point out and to raise up men and women God desires to use for the work of ministry. This is from the pastor side. This is the leadership side. There's looking for God to direct and point out and raise them up. We're praying. That we're not making the choice. That we're not just pulling a power trip. You understand? And through the years since 1980, God has always raised up men and women to serve in this ministry, to do the work of ministry. The number's never great. But the ministry's always complete. (laughs) By the grace of God. How dangerous it is that the choosing of men and women... From the church for the work of God can often be measured by wrong standards. So many churches are so quick to put people in because they're wealthy. We don't have membership here, so we don't take all kinds of information from you and we don't want it. But churches do, and the minute you find out, ooh, really, that's who he is. Well, they'll put you on a committee right away, a board right away. Because now you're, you know, it'd be a big tither. I don't know who you are. I don't know how much money you make. I don't really care. I never look at the tithing. That's not my business. God takes care of all that. The measure of popularity. All of a sudden... You're a rock star, or you're an, uh, uh, an artist, or you're a movie star, and you get saved, and you're coming that you're Oh, man, you sit them up front. You have them giving their testimony two hours after they're born again. Evangelists are good for that. You know, a mafia guy gets saved or something, or a movie star gets saved or something like that, and here we are. And they're not even grounded. They're not even rooted in Christ. And here you are, you're presenting them. uh, You know, why don't you just 
big Joe Blow from the crowd, a regular guy. What, what's so special about someone because of fame? We're carnal. Often it's by their education. Oh, you have degrees or this and that. And so you exalt them above it. And, and we put them in ministry thinking. Listen, ministry is spiritual. Now, I'm not against education. Get all the education you can. Once you get it, get over it. Use it, but don't wear it. Simple. Others put people in ministry because of their friendship. And because you're my best friend and you, you've helped me along, now I feel indebted that I need to put you to be my assistant or something. What? No, God picks those people. Now, it's funny, I've known Mario since he was 14 years old. We went to school together. He got saved at the beach. I got saved out here in San Gabriel Valley, and then God put it all together. But I've known Mario longer than I've known my wife. <laughs> but God's put it together. Listen to me. You, you don't, you're, you're not able to spend day after day with people for 30, 40 years if God hasn't put the staff together. You know, your people. Everybody's cool at the first, but then you go, hmm, he's got a lot of warts. <laughs> Jesus said, the harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. God is the one who chooses the people for ministry. Not me. The fact is that none of these things mentioned disqualify you for service for the work of God or ministry. But if, if that is the sole reason why you're chosen, it's absolutely wrong. From the pastor perspective, we need to be praying that God raise people up and anoint them and equip them. And that we would be sensitive to acknowledge that and, and, and let God put the ministry together. Putting someone in ministry is easier than removing them. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> you can add a lot of hurt to the church and to the people and to ministry by just making decisions yourself. Putting a pastoral staff together better be the choice of God or the problems and destruction are great. The qualifications for bishops and elders and deacons is given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And those are being ignored by many, many churches. They should never be ignored. Those must be met. They're not my qualifications. They're God's qualifications. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. 1 Timothy 5.22. How often pastors and ministers have put people on ministry and then they find out they didn't check their background. They did that. They just, you know, because they're popular or anything else. So what happened to Dylan? They threw him right out in front. Went back in the world. Pick up Dylan's album. He was born again. Great album, Christian album. But we thrust him right out in front because, you know, they're famous. We don't ground them. The third occasion Jesus prays was for the choosing of his 12 apostles for the ministry. Notice fourthly, 
chapter 9, verse 18 to 20. Um, the fourth occasion Jesus prays was at Caesarea Philippi for revealing Jesus. Jesus is at the northern region of Galilee at the foot of Mount Hermon at Banyas, one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. Some of you were there in May with us. Um, this was a place of worship of Pan, the god of nature. A legend says that he was born in the cave there at the foot of Mount Hermon, and we get the word pantheism, everything is God. Mark and uh, Matthew both confirmed that it was there uh, at Caesarea Philippi, distinct from Caesarea on the Mediterranean, where Paul was um, in prison. Now, Jesus alone, look at verse 18, uh, Jesus alone and praying to his father. When his disciples joined him, then he asked them who the crowds were saying that he was. The word for prayer, again, is adoration and worship. This is the third time it's used. There was various beliefs about Jesus. They're given to us here. John, Elijah, or the prophet. But nobody was saying Messiah. The spokesman for the group is Peter. He says... You are the Christ of God. Verse 20. Now, the cross parallel passage in Matthew 16, 17, and 19. Jesus says, Blessed thou art, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So God alone can reveal to people who Jesus is. This is very important. Lest we think that we're sufficient in ourselves or because we're so smart. So the fourth occasion of prayer by Jesus marks the dependence on God the Father to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah by the Holy Spirit to sinners for repentance. That I'm not trusting my ability to communicate, though I should do the best that I can, but it's the Spirit of God that convicts and deals with people's hearts about their sinfulness, their lostness, and their need of salvation. That's why I don't have any notches on my belt because I've never saved anybody. That's why we never give you numbers. So many thousands have come to this ministry. So many hundreds or only five. We don't give you numbers because numbers mean nothing to me. Numbers are very deceiving. We're looking to God to make this revelation to the sinner. Not a dependence upon mere information, be it archaeological evidence Manuscript evidence or persuasive words. No, it's the conviction and illuminating work of the Spirit of God to bring that sinner to the point of repentance, to see their need of Christ, and they have to make a decision. The vehicle is the Word of God, the gospel, as it is proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. The Holy Spirit was sent by the Father, and Jesus um, said that. He would convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment in John 6, 8. The Holy Spirit does that as the word is proclaimed. Not the pastor. Not the teacher. So many people are so arrogant behind the pulpit. We should be broken and humble that God would even use any of us to communicate the gospel. So the fourth occasion Jesus prays was at Caesarea Philippi. For revealing Jesus. It's a God thing. <laughs> not a man thing. The fifth occasion comes in chapter 9. Verse 28 through 36. The fifth occasion Jesus prays. 
was on the Mount of Transfiguration to reveal the future glory. Um, Jesus just announced to his disciples that some of them would not die till they saw the kingdom of God in verse uh, 27. In 28, Luke says, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took Peter, John, and James, and they went up to the mountain to pray. Luke is the only one that tells us this. Okay? Tradition says the Mount Tabor is the place, but most likely is Mount Hermon. The confession was made at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's one of the tallest mountains. There's snow up there in the winter. Okay? Mount Tabor is way down by the Galilee, below it. Most likely it's there. Now, Notice 29, Luke alone tells us Jesus was praying, as I said, and the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. The word for prayer for the fourth time means adoration and worship. The word alters metamorphosis, we get our word from it, from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Glorified, transformed. Notice Moses and Elijah in verse 30 to 31 are seen in their glory. The representatives of the law and the prophets here, speaking with Jesus about his exodus, his departure when he goes to Jerusalem to die, be buried and raised from the dead after three days. This is six months under the shadow of the cross from this point on. From this point, Jesus always mentions his death with his resurrection all the time together. The disciples didn't get it. They were looking for a conquering Messiah, not a suffering Messiah. They were looking to rule and reign, not to serve. They were shocked when they got to Jerusalem. After a bit of nervous talk by Peter, 33 to 36, the three heard the father's voice out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Hear him. They saw the second coming in preview form here. (laughs) That's what they saw. The second coming of Christ. In preview form. You get the other preview in Psalm 2. Now. The fifth occasion of prayer by Jesus. Marks a dependency on God. To prepare us to leave this world. Of temporal and inferior glory. Confidently longing one day. To be just like him. Listen. To 2 Corinthians 4.16. Down to 5.8. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction. Which is. uh, But for a moment. Is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen. But the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. But the things that are not seen are eternal. That's where we live. As Christians, we understand this. We need to bring our thoughts in captivity. Before we live for the world, this and that. How sad that we thought it was just of getting stuff and doing things. And once you got it all together, then you got to fight to keep it. Then you die. And that's it. God help us. Nothing wrong with the things, but I don't live for the things any longer. Do they pull on me? Oh, they want to. I have to say no to Xavier. It's okay for you to say no to you. In fact, it's good to, for you to say no to you. He goes on in chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, and that's a good description, this is a tent. You ever go camping? It tells you one thing. You're only here for a little while. 
If it's destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed or naked, but further clothed that not mortality may be swallowed up of life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given to us the spirit of a guarantee. Therefore, if we, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in this body, this tent, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The minute you give up your last breath or I, I am instantly present with the Lord. This body will go to the ground. This body will be raised up when the Lord comes back in the rapture. He'll glorify it just like His. But when I die, my spirit goes instantly present and my body goes to the ground. Okay? I don't sleep and pull a number that says 1 trillion, 500 million, 400, I get in line. No. The word sleep is a euphemism only for the Christian resting. In fact, you get the word cemetery from it. Okay? The word sleep is never used of the non-believer. Never. Only a believer. And that doesn't mean literal sleep. It means that you're no longer here. You're before the Lord. And your body's in the ground. In fact, 1 John 3, 1-3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, Jesus, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as He is pure. The greatest incentive for holy living is that the Lord can come for me right now, or I can die. Duh. That should hit every Christian. I'm looking for the Lord coming for me. And if he tarries, I'm going to die like anybody else. And I can die any time. People die healthy all the time. <laughs> the fifth occasion Jesus prays was on the Mount of Transfiguration to reveal the future glory. Very important we keep that in prayer. We're always constantly in our foremind. The Lord can come. The Lord's coming for me. I can be gone anytime. Not with fear. But it'll cause me to live in priorities. And to be the church, not just go to church. The sixth occasion is in chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. The sixth occasion Jesus prays um, is after the seventy return. And he gave thanks to the Father for those saved. Jesus has just reproved the 70 for rejoicing that demons were subject to them as they were preaching the gospel, um, healed the diseased, and cast out demons. But he says, rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus turned to thank the Father for those who were saved. Verse 21 in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that descended upon him at the baptism and empowered him to defeat Satan in the wilderness. The very same Spirit. The third person. He rejoiced, meaning exceedingly glad, thrilled with joy by the Holy Spirit. 
And God gave him the spirit without measure, we're told by John. Notice Jesus thanked the Father in prayer, Lord heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, for having hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. It sounds almost like God is blinding people purposely, right? That's not what he's talking about. The word hidden there is concealed from the wise and prudent. Those who are dependent on their own intellect and pride. It means that the gospel is preached and some hear the gospel and are open to the revelation that they're sinners in rebellion to God. And they repent. And others say, I am not a sinner. I don't need salvation. And they harden their heart. We studied the parable of the sower, right? In, in Luke 8. And some fell by the wayside, never penetrated. This is the ones who reject. Now, if you reject the gospel, if you don't agree in God that you're a sinner, that you're an enemy of God and need a salvation, then God honors your choice. And so the light that he gave you for you to see that, now that you disagreed with him, he removes it from you. So you remain blind. In fact, greater blindness because now that little light is taken away. So there's further darkness. Are we agreed on this? But you can't blame God because he honors your choice, right? You say you didn't agree with God. So he honors it. Fine. Because he doesn't force you to go to heaven. But you can go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. If you agree with God. So God honors their choice and removes the light which was given them, resulting in spiritual darkness, blindness. Listen to Jesus in John eight eighteen. there in the parable of the sower. Remember, he said, therefore, take heed, a warning, how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken away from him. That's regarding the gospel. That's the context. Parable of the sower. So the little light that is given, if you reject it, it's taken from you. So you end up worse than you began. But that's your choosing. God just honors your choice. So you can't blame God. Simple. Now look at 21. In contrast, he reviews it to babes. Those who humbly acknowledge their inability to merit salvation by any work that they do. Trusting only the atoning work of Jesus Christ. They are poverty of spirit. Bankrupt. They agree with the beatitude. Matthew 5.3. Poor in spirit. Bankrupt. I can't deserve it. I can't merit it. I have to receive it by grace through faith. Agreeing with God that I'm a sinner. Jesus reveals the Father. John 1.18. No one else. He says this seems good to the Father's sight. Notice. Not that sinners are blinded, but that babes have opened their heart and are saved. Okay? The absolute authority of Jesus is vested by the Father to Him. The Father draws sinners, and the Son reveals the Father to those in salvation. Verse 22 is very clear. The intricate relationship between the Father and the Son are tied together. You get the Father through the Son. You reject the Son, you neither get the Son nor the Father. Real simple. So the sixth occasion of prayer by Jesus marks the thankfulness that we should have for believers who have come to Christ having agreed with God that they're sinners. We should thank God for those who repent, those who believe the gospel. Realizing that it's not us who has done this, but we've been the instrument. We've seen the power of God in the life of believers. You witnessed the power in your own life. You heard the gospel and you were convicted and you repented. That's a work of God. 
The message of the gospel is not ours. It has been imparted to us. The authority to preach the gospel is invested to us. It's not ours. And the responsibility to, to, for people to repent is not ours. Ours is just to preach the gospel. This is the definition of a herald in the days that Paul was writing. A herald was hired by the king or the state to make proclamations. The message was not theirs. It was given to them. The authority was not theirs. It was vested to them to make the proclamation. And they were not responsible for the response to the proclamation. Their only responsibility was to make the proclamation. So we, we are the ends we proclaim. It's not my message, not my authority. And I'm not responsible for your response. Though I know there will be a response, one of two. You'll accept or you'll reject. Simple. The understanding that it is the Father who initiates in salvation and the Son who reveals the Father is very, very clear throughout. So the sixth occasion Jesus prays was after the seventh return and he gave thanks to the Father in prayer for those saved. So in our prayer life, there needs to be a room for thanksgiving, not just asking, but thanksgiving. Particularly in the text for those that are saved. But so many things we can put on the list. Notice sevenly. Sevenly. How about seventh? The seventh occasion Jesus um, prays was when um, one of the disciples asked him to teach them to pray. In uh, chapter 11, verse 1 through 4 of Luke. As you know, Jesus often prayed and they always watched him. But he never prayed with the disciples together. We never get any record of that. Jesus is once again praying, and one of his disciples observing him uh, asked him, teach us to pray. In verse 1, the request was, as John taught his disciples to pray. Um, the word prayer there again is admiration and worship for the fifth and sixth time. Both of these words here. Now, it's interesting that it says, as John the Baptist taught, we don't get any record of that. So it's an interesting statement knowing that he did. We just don't have any record of it. Notice in verse 2 through 4, Jesus proceeds to teach them to pray, not a prayer to be repeated, but an example um, teaching them proper perspective, attitude, and content of prayer. Jesus could have never prayed this. This is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, but it isn't Jesus' prayer. He can never pray this. Why? Because you're asking forgiveness of sins. Jesus had no sin. The Lord's Prayer is found in John 17 when he speaks to the Father before he goes to the cross. Now, as a Catholic, I was taught the Lord's Prayer and we repeat it over and over again. I went to confession. People say, say, ten, tell Mary, three-hour fathers or whatever. So you repeat it like a parrot thinking that's going to make God hear you. No. First notice verse 2. He teaches them an acknowledgement of one being addressed, being the Father in heaven, whose name is holy. There's a relationship that the Jew never had. The, Father, the Jew never called God Father in the Old Testament. There's not one text to that. Now, as a nation, it's a reference that God was the Father of the nation, but never to an individual Jew. This is a higher privilege than any other in the New Testament, that we are called sons of God. We can call him Abba Father, Daddy. And he's holy. Second thing is recognizing the priority of the kingdom of God. Verse 2. It's his kingdom come. That's a priority in our prayers. Not my kingdom. A lot of pastors are building their kingdom. 
And they're good marketers, good organizers. They become famous. And they don't spend time with the people anymore. They're too busy. So they share their sermon, then they make exit stage left. Go to church like that? Go to a real church. Where pastors can meet with you and pray with you and talk with you. Not celebrity pastors. Thirdly, desiring the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. So his kingdom and his will. Priorities. Fourth, in verse 3, depending on God for daily provisions, our daily bread. It's so easy not to pray for that because, well, well, I can just go to the store. And yes, we have stores, but are you dependent on the Father to provide your daily bread? Thanking Him. Fifth, in verse 4, going to God to be forgiven for sins because... We forgive the sins of those who ask us to forgive them. Ooh, they're tied together. If I don't forgive people who ask me to forgive, I have no right to ask God to forgive me or to believe that He will if I don't forgive. Matthew tells us that. If I don't forgive others, God will not forgive me. Ooh. It's condition. And then, six, trusting and yielding to God against the temptations of the devil. Four, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, Satan. Looking to God, not trusting myself. So the seventh occasion of prayer by Jesus marks a dependency on God to learn to pray. The attitude, the perspective of holiness, his will, his kingdom, and the content of all that. You can watch people pray, but we also need instruction. So we study the prayers of the Bible, the prayers of Jesus. We have one weakness, the scripture says in Romans 8.26. We don't know how to pray the way we ought. So the Spirit makes intercession according to the will of God. Ephesians 6.18 in the armor includes prayer. Jude verse 2 says we're to pray in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a dependency on God to direct us in prayer. The priority is God's kingdom and God's will, not ours. Prayer really begins with God, true prayer. Not just me coming with lists. Let me give you an example. Remember when Moses was up on Mount Sinai? And God's ready to wipe out the children of Israel? And Moses says, Lord, if you cannot forgive them, blot my name out of the book of life. Now you got one of two choices. Either that prayer was laid on Moses' heart to be listed to God so God could do that. Or Moses is more compassionate than God. Which one you want? <laughs> it's simple. True prayer often is begun with God as he lays it on our heart and it begins to burden us. Or we come to God in prayer with our lips and all of a sudden the Spirit of God begins to lay and redirect us on our petitions to have His kingdom done, His will be done. Priorities. The mini parable that follows is an illustration usually taught about being persistent in prayer. 
But that would mean that it teaches by comparison, making God out to be like this friend, reluctant to give him bread from verse 5 through 8. We'll get into it more tonight. But it's a contrast, not a comparison. Parables compare a contrast. And the majority of people teach this as a comparison. No. This friend, even though he's a friend, he will not get up. In fact, the word persistent means shameless persistency. And he says, this guy's going to keep bugging me. I'm going to get up and give just to get rid of him. Is that the way you think God answers your prayer? Oh, God, Gabriel, give him what he wants. Let's get him out of here. No, it's a contrast. God isn't like that. The next parable is also a contrast from 9 to 13. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, verse 13. How much more contrast will your heavenly father give to you the gift of the Holy Spirit? Both of them are contrast. They do not teach that you need to storm and persist and bug God. It teaches that all you have to do is ask. Wow. How that message can be destroyed because we don't study properly. All of us have fallen prey to this and do if we don't study on our own. Very important. So the seventh occasion Jesus prays was when one of his disciples asked him to teach them to pray. The eighth and last occasion Jesus prays was in the Garden of Gethsemane to submit to the difficult will of God. Hmm. Chapter 22, verse 39 through 46. Jesus has just finished celebrating the Passover in the upper room with his 12 disciples, apostles at this time. And they've just departed to Gethsemane singing the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 113 to 118. Going down the, the, the side of the mountain on the, on the temple side, down the Kidron and up to the mountain of, uh, Mount of Olives there. Um, verse 39 identifies the Mount of Olives here. Jesus often went there. It's custom, it's practice. And in verse 40, Jesus arrived at Gethsemane, the olive press is what it means, at the foot of Mount Olives, commanding his disciples to pray, at this point their apostles, so that they not enter temptation. A lot of times we give in because we're not praying. We're trusting on our own strength, our experience. Well, I've done this before. I know how to handle you. What? Experience is good, but you, in the Lord, you can't trust just what you've successfully fulfilled in the past. It's like a test. You may have passed a test in the past, but if I take it again, will you pass it? It's a new test. Jesus withdrew, kneeling to pray, verse 41 says. Again, both words for prayer is the word that we've studied, adoration and worship. This is the sixth to seventh time. Now, Jesus was very sorrowful, greatly distressed and troubled, and took Peter, James, and John. Matthew 26 and Mark 14 confirmed this. Jesus prayed for the cup to pass from in verse 42. Knowing the horror of the physical suffering 
But most of all, for the spiritual violation that he was going to be made literal sin and he was going to be separated from the Father's fellowship for the very first time and the wrath of God the Father would be falling upon him for me, for you, in my place. We have no idea about this. We can never comprehend it. He said, not my will, but yours be done. These are difficult times. That's how it applies for us. This is not a light matter in the ministry and life of Jesus. Jesus was strengthened by angels being in such agony that verse 43 and 44 says, He sweat like great bloods of blood falling to the ground. Now, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, and other translations say that these two verses are not in the original, so they omit them. I don't think so. That's why it's important that you know translations. These verses, the fact that he sweat as drops of blood, his capillaries just bursting through the, through the skin. Nobody says that but Luke. And you're going to tell me they're not in the original? What precious verses to get rid of. And so many translations do so. Jesus arose and he found the disciples asleep in 45 through 46. The word for prayer there, again, means to address God in prayer in general. The idea of worship and reverence always to God. It's the same word that was used when Jesus prayed all night to choose his 12 apostles. Same one. The disciples are reproved for sleeping, not guarding against temptation. Verse 46, what's coming? They're going to come to rest Jesus. What do they do? They run. They flee. Matthew and Mark tell us he prayed three times and every time he returned, they were sleeping. The eighth occasion of prayer by Jesus marks a dependency on God for submitting ourselves to his perfect will. Even in times of agony and suffering. This is where the rubber meets the road, ladies and gentlemen. This is when you and your wife can't get along. This is when you and your children are having a difficult time. This is when they tell you that you've lost your job. This is when you get the news that you've got cancer. This is when your world is falling apart. This is life. Too many Christians are like people in the world with the social media. They're living the dream, a lie. Everybody's a star today. They have their own TV program, Twitter. Everything they post, lies the majority of it. Wow. What a plastic world we live in today. Christians are included, by the way. Prayer is to align ourselves with the will of God in order to not do our own will. Listen. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit them, their souls to Him in doing good as a faithful creator. 1 Peter 4.19 Those who suffer according to the will of God. Why would God do that? I have no idea. But I know He's sufficient. Prayer too often is thought of only as getting things from God 
where it really is to tap into the things in the will of God. Daniel 9, Daniel went to the Lord. Seventh week of Daniel. 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, His will. Simple principle. Ready? The will of God is found in the Word of God. Not your emotions, not your feelings, not your opinions, not in, Lord, if, if this is really you, I should go out with this non-believer, let the phone ring in the next five hours at least one time. The will of God is found in the Word of God. Are you a student of the Word of God? Then you know the will of God. Prayer will strengthen us in and through the difficult times of suffering by doing the will of God. And He will use it for His glory. Many of you, I could go around this room, you can tell me of things. That you and your wife and you yourself have gone through. They were just horrible. And because you were committed to do the will of God. You went through it. And you've come out looking more like Jesus than yourself. And though you wouldn't want to go through it again. You would never exchange it for all the money in the world. Because it made you more like him and less like you. Welcome to the family. There's no exception. Listen to First um, Peter four twelve through sixteen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice in the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ. Blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a busybody, and other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let her not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now, if people tell you to shut up because you're obnoxious, don't say it's because you're a Christian. You're just obnoxious. If people tell you to get out of their life because you're being nosy, don't say it's because you're a Christian. It's simple. Interesting that this is the eighth occasion regarding prayer. As you know, the number eight is the number of new beginnings. Number seven is the number of completeness. Seven days in a week, seven basic colors in the color scale, seven notes in the music scale. Eighth is a new beginning always. The Christian's life is a new beginning that is to be marked by prayer, a total and complete dependency upon God. There's no exception. The word for prayer throughout this, these texts is just a simple word for prayer that means prayer in general, encompassing worship and petition. How we need to pray, ladies and gentlemen, more than ever before. As we are in the last days. If you're involved in ministry. You have kids. You have a marriage. So many things that prayer is so needful. It seems that we, we try everything. And once everything is exhausted. We say, well okay. We might as well pray. Like if it's the last thing. No it's supposed to be the first thing. The very first thing. 
So you're not like a chicken with your head cut off running around. The eighth occasion Jesus prays was in the Garden of Gethsemane to submit to the difficult situation by the will of God. Wow. How are we doing? No one escapes it. Listen to Andrew Bonner. Oh, brother, pray. In spite of Satan, pray. Spend hours in prayer. Rather neglect friends than not pray. Rather fast and lose breakfast, dinner, tea and supper, and sleep too than not pray. And we must not talk about prayer. We must pray in right earnest. The Lord is near. He comes softly while the virgins Slumber. Wow. Eight occasions of the Lord's prayer life. They teach us some important basic principles for our own lives. Don't ignore them. Don't let them fall by the wayside. You that are young, if the Lord tarries, you've got a long way to go. I'm looking back to 41 years of ministry. And being a Christian, prayers brought me through my life, my family, this ministry. No problems? Right. I'd be a liar. Victorious? Absolutely. Heartache? Count on it. Tears? Get ready. Standing? All the time. Where else can we go? But the prayer. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your love. We worship you, Lord. We're so thankful for your grace. And that we can come before you any time of need. Before the throne of grace. As you're praying, if you um, don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. We pray that you would repent, that you would agree with God. But you're the one that makes that choice, no one else. If you're here over the internet, you can ask Christ to forgive you right now and to save you. It's through a prayer, a prayer of repentance. You want to be born again, this is your prayer. You can repeat it right where you're at. And he will save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.